Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Show notes and additional episodes are available at kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog at comlawmonitor.com. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Hello, and welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast. I'm Steve Augustino from the Communications Practice Group. Hello, everyone. I'm Brad Currier, also with the Communications Group here at Kelly Dry. And our topic today is an enforcement matter, so we're back again on enforcement. Uh, before we dig into everything, though, I want to note this is our first enforcement podcast since the COVID-19 pandemic hit and the shutdown at the FCC. So um, we are doing this remote. We have been remote at Kelly Drive for over six months now, as I imagine uh, many of our listeners have been remote as well. Um, The FCC, nevertheless, has been going forward. They also are working remote and working through a transition to a new building on on the other side of town. So there's a lot going on, but enforcement has not stopped. Um, in, in fact, Brad, we know we still have investigations going on. Uh, we are seeing some changes in the way that the Enforcement Bureau is addressing those. Um, I think it's mostly been really just about uh, paper filings and sort of the lack of those filings so far. Yep, that's correct, Steve. I mean, the summer was pretty light on final enforcement actions. I think that's the best way to look at it, final determinations and penalties. You know, the major activity over the summer was another huge robocall NAL, uh, totaling uh, $225 million in proposed fines, uh, forfeiture order and equipment marketing case that was for $2.8 million, and a highly unusual order that actually canceled an E-rate uh, proposed forfeiture. And so after surviving the summer, (laughs) you and I are here with another analysis of how the agency approaches investigations and sanctions for violations of its rules. And we're going to try something a little different this time. We're going to look at what we're going to call a decision of the month. And the decision of month is an order that we found particularly important or particularly interesting, potentially for its precedential value, or maybe just an interesting set of facts. Uh, Regardless, by selecting a decision of the month, we hope to provide an insight into the FCC's processes or current enforcement thinking, or maybe I'll just keep you entertained enough to listen for the remainder of the podcast. Um, Here, September's decision of the month is going to show a shift in the FCC's enforcement focus and its take on the often controversial continuing violation theory. That's right, Brad. But before we, you know, uh, we reveal the specific decision and then dive into it, um, I want to say a couple things about uh, September as well. There really weren't a lot of choices that we had for September. I did a, um, a, a search, and there were only about nine final releases by the Enforcement Bureau in September. Um, there was a lot of things that happened early in the month. It was kind of a, there were a half dozen settlements with broadcasters over online political file cases. Um, but those orders, those six of them there from September, were really kind of a continuation of a series of orders that began over the summer and totaled over 80 in all on critical files. So, you know, they don't really, in my mind, count as a September 
violation um, or a September action here? Yeah, I guess that's true if you're not applying a statute of limitations analysis. You know, there you'd look to the end of the course of action, not the beginning. Yeah, I think that's right. But, but for this one, I'm going to look at those. Um, in any event, those orders essentially acted as warnings because many of them didn't have a monetary component with the settlement um, and merely in trying to promise to implement a compliance plan, or in other words, a promise to comply with the rules that already applied to those entities. So, um, you know, while there were a lot of those, they were kind of really uh, warnings. Another option that we had was an order released in the middle of the month that changed the procedures for administrative hearings and the use of the commission's administrative law judge or ALJ. Now that fits the bill as an enforcement action, but the hearing procedures are um, you know, used less often these days. And to be honest, devoting an entire podcast to a purely procedural order sounded a little boring to us. Yeah, it uh, might be more than just a little boring. <laughs> So, so while it's important, you know, I'll, I'll give the credit there to the folks, but uh, we're not going to talk about that one. So the last major um, option we had that we declined was that one that came in right at the buzzer here. Uh, it was an order adopted September 30th at the commission's open meeting, and it imposed a fine on Sandwich Isles for USF funding violations. Um, fines, USF funding, those are things that we normally cover here. Um, and this one's pretty meaty. It was for $49 million, um, a significant amount. But the facts there are very complicated, and the principles involved there are not as interesting as the case that we've chosen to discuss. So while it's a kind of a close second, I'd say, but you know, we're not going to do sandwich aisles for this one either. We're going to dig into a, a different choice. Right, so that takes us to our choice for the month, which is the Barrier Communications Corporation barrier-free decision. As we discussed, the barrier-free decision, the FCC is taking a hard look at providers' broadband deployment data reporting obligations in enforcement to ensure that these filings are both timely and accurate. However, the FCC appears to be backing away from its prior enforcement approach of treating filing violations as continuing until cured. Basically, the violation period continues until you file the corrected filings. It remains unclear what impact this is going to actually have on enforcement penalties, as the FCC also appears willing to apply upward adjustments to proposed fines to make up for potentially time-barred violations. So let's get into a little background here. You know, all facilities-based broadband providers are required to submit coverage and subscribership data on what's known as the form, form, form 477 twice a year. And that's due usually on March 1st and September 1st. And the data here are important because they're used to inform FCC decision-making, especially in the context of identifying unserved areas that need high-cost support to spur broadband deployment. Off the top of my head, think of the FCC's current Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, also its annual broadband report. Right, right. And to, to put this context, this NAL in context, you need to understand that use by the FCC and uh, recall the broadband reporting controversy that occurred in February of 2019. At that time, the FCC circulated a draft broadband deployment report for the commissioner's consideration. That's the annual broadband deployment report. Um, the commission, though, at the time also released a press release that touted a few of the statistics included in the draft report 
and included a claim that the digital divide, a, an important aspect of the FCC's work over the last few years, had been substantially narrowed over the previous year. That press release turned out to rely upon anomalous Form 477 data that was reported by um, a number of parties. And the FCC eventually walked back from some of the statements that was included in that initial press release. So it was a little bit of an embarrassing uh, incident for at least some at the FCC. One of the main culprits in this story was a small ISP named Barrier Free. Barrier Free's filing in 2018 reported 62 million, or roughly 62 million accessible subscribers, a figure that greatly contributed to the increase in subscribers claimed in the FCC press release. In fact, according to pre uh, Free Press, which broke the story about Barrier Free, Barrier Free's reporting accounted for nearly one third of the increase in homes served with fixed broadband at a speed of at least 25.3 um, uh, upward and, and down and downstream and upstream there. So like the barrier free was a significant source of the error. So naturally after the controversy, the FCC decided it needed to investigate those barrier free filings. All right, so let's dig into the actual facts here. So on September 2nd, 2020, the FCC issued a $163,912 proposed fine against Barrier Free for allegedly failing to file Form 477s, misstating broadband deployment data on those Form 477s, and failing to respond to FCC inquiries about its Form 477s. Now, specifically, the FCC alleged that Barrier Free failed to submit 27 Form 77s Form on time and overstated its broadband subscribership on four Form 477 filings. The FCC also alleged that Barrier Free's responses to the Enforcement Bureau's LOIs about the Form 477s were either inaccurate or insufficient. Now, Barrier Free... Brett, Brett, say Form 477 quickly, three times, right? Exactly. It's a tongue twister. So Barrier Free conceded in response to the investigation that it did not file any Form 477s from 2004 when it started providing service to about 2017. That claimed it thought that the form reporting was voluntary. But in line with longstanding precedent, the FCC found ignorance of regulatory obligations was not going to be an excuse for noncompliance. The FCC also claimed that it provided reminders directly to Barrier Free regarding upcoming and missed Form 477 filing deadlines. The FCC alleged that Barrier Free initially reported serving seven states in Washington, D.C., although, as Steve mentioned, its actual service territory was confined to Fire Island, New York. Now, in addition, even within the subscriber's service territory, the FCC alleged that Barrier Free reported subscribership data that exceeded the potential residential connections in the geographic area on multiple Form 477s. So Barrier Free claimed that the data discrepancy stemmed at least in part from confusion over census tract information and the ability to claim for areas where it could deploy service under an existing partnership. And the issue with that is, is that the Form 477 instructions direct providers to provide data on actual deployments through either ownership or lease of broadband infrastructure, not on proposed or potential deployments. The FCC therefore claimed that Barrier Free failed to exercise due diligence before submitting its Form 477s to the FCC. 
Now the FCC. Brad, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to jump in right there. Just so, just before we get to the the LOI part of this. So really, what the commission is alleging is that there were errors, both failures to file and then errors in the form. And the target says it was due to ignorance or ordinary negligence that those were not filed correctly uh, or not filed on time. Yeah, that's correct. And so turning to the other side of the violations here for barrier-free, the FCC alleged that barrier-free's responses to the Enforcement Bureau's LOIs, and LOIs are the letters of inquiry that they use when they launch investigations to obtain information, said the barrier-free's responses contained inaccuracies regarding barrier-free's licenses and failed to provide requested subscribership data, financial information, and supporting documentation for its Form 477s. So as a result, the FCC alleged that barrier-free failed to fully respond to both the initial LOI and the supplemental LOI, and critically, the FCC also found that barrier-free's LOI responses represented misrepresentations slash the lack of candor violations because barrier-free allegedly lacked a reasonable basis for believing its submissions to the FCC were both true and accurate. So the FCC found its general one-year statute of limitations on forfeitures prevented it from proposing fines directly for 26 of the 27 alleged failures to file the Form 477s. However, the FCC relied on these time-barred filings to show a you know, quote-unquote history of violations to justify an upward adjustment on the timely violations. Now, this is highly problematic as the Communications Act explicitly prohibits the FCC from assessing forfeitures for time-barred violations standing on their own. The FCC also upwardly adjusted the proposed forfeiture because barrier-free's purportedly inaccurate data were initially included in the FCC's 2019 broadband report, as Steve mentioned, although it should be pointed out the FCC eventually revised the report to remove the data. The FCC similarly upwardly adjusted the proposed fine for the you know, alleged egregiousness of barrier-free's failures to provide full and accurate and timely responses to the LOIs. So as a result, where you start with a $3,000 base forfeiture for the alleged Form 477-related violations and a $4,000 base forfeiture for the alleged LOI responses violations, the FCC upwardly adjusted those base forfeitures, each and every one of them, to the statutory maximum of about $20,000, a um, little bit over $20,000 for non-common carriers slash broadcast licensees. So you basically get eight total violations at the $20,000 maximum to get to $163,000. And, and I, I think we should note, of course, that you know this is a proposed fine against barrier-free. It's only allegations against the company. The company's going to have an opportunity to submit a response um, before the FCC makes a final decision. So you know there may be additional or new facts. But one thing that strikes me about that is on the OI side of this. So roughly half of this proposed fine comes from two failures to respond and two misrepresentations in the responses. Uh, so you get four of the eight violations out of that. Um, when you go through this NAL, you see that barrier-free does not appear that they were represented by counsel in the investigation. Um, so this, in, in one way, is yet another situation where the target didn't really help themselves very much 
in responding to the commission. And I don't know why or, or how it comes about, but it sort of strikes as me as another situation of kind of unforced errors that lead to a larger penalty or lead to a penalty when there might have been opportunities to settle something prior to reaching this this stage. So um, it's a little, a little sad, if you will, that we ended up where we are. All right, so, so that's the background and what happens in the NAL. Um, but let's talk now about why it's important and why we selected this as our decision of the month. And I'll start first, Brad, on this. Um, first, I'll say it's significant because this is the first enforcement action the commission has taken for broadband deployment reporting errors. Um, so it's an indication that the FCC is or could take hard, a hard look at that data. It obviously reflects uh, a political controversy and results from a, an area of disagreement between the Republicans and the Democratic commissioners on the FCC's uh, broadband deployment and the effectiveness of that. In fact, both Democratic commissioners uh, issued statements with the NAL that chastised the FCC for having poor broadband mapping data and for the 2019 situation that led to the press release and the controversy around it. So in, in many ways, I think the first takeaway on this is you'll see that this is a reaction to those 2019 controversies where the FCC had allegedly overstated um, the information because of the providers' overstatements of their data. Now, the FCC eventually corrected that, and they moved on to uh, additional mapping arrangements under the um, Digital Opportunity Data Collection. Um, but... You know, there's a question here really is whether this is a, a one-time action that the FCC felt it, re, it needed to take because of the publicity or whether this will stick as a broader uh, marker for future filings. Yeah, yeah. But, on the, you know, but on the other hand, I mean, one can argue that this is a marker for potential future filings that involve incorrect data. I mean, you know, as you said, this is the first time that the FCC takes enforcement action principally motivated by data reporting inaccuracies. Now, typically, other reporting enforcement actions have been about failures to report, such as hearing aid compatibility reports or filing Form 499A data. I mean, other inaccuracy cases, like in the USF context, you know, can be seen as false claims in situations where the wrongdoer, the alleged wrongdoer, sort of profits from the filing claimed to be inaccurate or inconsistent with the rules. But this action goes directly to an inaccuracy in the reporting that doesn't even benefit the file filer and one failure to report that is within the statute of limitations. And the FCC used a low standard forfeiture, you know, again, the $3,000 base for the Form 477 violations and the $4,000 base forfeiture for the LOI-related violations, but upwardly adjust the, the fine significantly due to other factors. Yeah, yeah, and, and you noted that upward adjustment. That's another thing that I, you know, that strikes me about this. Um, you know, maybe this is a, a slight detour, but I want to take it anyway. Um, you know, this is a large forfeiture penalty based upon a three thousand dollar and a four thousand dollar base forfeiture, um, and I think it's time for the FCC to take a look again at the consistency of those base forfeitures. You know, the the ones here involved this $3,000 fine for failure to file a form, which they've used also for filing an inaccurate form. 
but the commission has regularly used other base forfeitures for other specific forms, such as there's a, an informal base of $50,000 for failing to file the USF form 499, whether the A or the Q. Um, it uses a $40,000 base for failure to file an outage reporting notice and a $30,000 base for the second outage reporting notice if that deadline is also missed. And there are other instances, if you go back in history, of as high of a base forfeiture as $100,000 for failing to file the annual CPNI certification that was used back in 2007. Uh, there were cases at that $100,000 level before the commission kind of wandered, before it kind of settled on an amount of about $20,000 for that same action. So you have multiple different actions, failure to file forms that are deviate from this $3,000 base and they can go anywhere from $3,000 to say $50,000 or more depending on the particular form. So the forfeiture guidelines have this goal of ensuring that there's uniformity in the fines for similar conduct across different services um, and I'm not sure that that goal is currently being served with the age of these uh, base forfeitures. I think it's time to really take a look at that. But going forward, right. yeah. So, so, so going forward on this, though, um, you know, one lesson definitely is that providers need to make sure that they're submitting their Form 477s on time and that the data are accurate. Um, while this form is being phased out over the next few years and replaced by that uh, digital opportunity data collection form, it remains a requirement, and um, this precedent could certainly be used in the in the new form as well on that. So providers need to really think about that um, and think about how you're going to file this form. It's not necessarily that you need counsel for every single form that you're reporting to the FCC. Um, but this does show that that providers need to have due care and exercise due care in completing the forms and that the forms generally should not be addressed casually or um, you know, completed by the least experienced member of the team. You really have to put some effort into making sure that you're providing the data that is asked for and you're providing it accurately. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right, Steve. And, you know, another big takeaway here is that the FCC at least appears to be putting some guardrails on what's known as the continuing violation theory. And so in the past, the FCC has often asserted that certain violations continued until cured, effectively extending the limitations period indefinitely. The FCC has applied this continuing continuing violation theory in a variety of contexts, including for failures to file timely and accurate forms. And I'm thinking in the context of lifeline claims or, you know, hearing aid compatibility reports, tower registrations, things like that. But here, it's interesting because the FCC treats the failure to file a required form, here the Form 477, as a single discrete violation with the limitations clock running once the filing deadline passed. So they only actually go after one out of the alleged 27 failures to file here. Now, this comports with another recent decision we discussed at the top, um, where the FCC found that the limitation period on alleged violations related to certain charges under the E-rate program began to run once the charges were assessed. And there, they actually canceled the proposed forfeiture as time-barred. Uh, Commission Enforcement Bureau leadership, I mean, they publicly and privately said 
that the continuing violation theory for failures to file forms has been discarded, but maybe that's not so clear. And what I'm talking about is that in the dissent to the barrier-free decision, Commissioner Rosenworcel stated that the FCC should have applied the continuing violation theory to all 27 apparent failures to file Form 477. However, this now appears to be the minority view among the commissioners. So thus, you know, while certain violations still may be susceptible to the continuing violation theory to extend the limitations period, and there I'm thinking about like the paradigmatic example, which is unauthorized transfers of control. Now, that sort of extends until it's fixed. You know, but the FCC likely doesn't, you know, no longer appears to apply the theory to violations related to one-time filings with clear deadlines. Yeah, yeah. Although, as you noted with Commissioner Rosenworcel's um, dissent, or, well, her comment in the um, statement there, that it's that's not 100% clear, right? We thought that this continuing violation theory, which was, was in vogue prior to Chairman Pai, uh, taking uh, control of the mission, um, you know, we thought it was his, was eliminated. That was sort of certainly what Pi had indicated. But Commissioner Rosenworcel is uh, often speculated as a potential FCC chair if the Democrats win the White House in November. So if that happens, we could be debating the continuing violation theory again because her dissent suggests that the use of the theory is discretionary for the commission, and it can be used in some contexts, but maybe not all. So maybe this theory isn't necessarily dead um, or in the past. It might be, as uh, one of my favorite lines from The Princess Bride says, it might just be mostly dead. <laughs> yep, that's absolutely right. And, you know, and to qualify it further here, I think the one last takeaway from the barrier-free decision is that the FCC is still willing to use time-barred violations to justify upward forfeiture adjustments to proposed forfeitures. So, you know, as a result, it does, doesn't look like the limitations on the continuing violation theory will serve as a barrier to large forfeiture amounts when the FCC really wants to make a point. Yeah. No, that, that's true. You know, they're certainly using those, um, uh, you know, those upward adjustments uh, liberally and aggressively. So, okay, so, so that's, a, I mean, that's a lot in here, um, but let me try to just wrap it up a little bit and, and, and summarize where we are. Um, number one, we think barrier-free shows the importance of ensuring that your broadband deployment submissions to the FCC are timely and are accurate. Um, it serves as a caution that all FCC reporting obligations need to be taken seriously, that service providers should ensure that the personnel they select to complete the forms are sufficiently experienced, have access to the correct data, and are adequately trained in the reporting requirement. Um, second, you know, with the FCC's guardrails now on the continuing violation theory, at least for now, um, regulated entities are armed with a potential new argument against enforcement actions um, that deal with discrete filings with clear deadlines, and that um, can be very, very uh, helpful. And then lastly, um, the, the point you were making, Brad, right before this, you know, the FCC has many tools in its toolbox. And so even if certain violations are deemed to be time-barred, the FCC still can use those time-barred violations to justify upward adjustments in the proposed finding, fi proposed forfeitures, rather. 
So while the amount, there may be a fewer number of violations, they can reach larger amounts by upwardly adjusting those individual ones for things that occurred outside of the statute of limitations. Now that's kind of, you know, you could argue that that's a shift um, and, and may ultimately, you know, be more form over substance, at least when it comes to calculating the severity of the fines. But, you know, that's to be seen. And then lastly, I want to note with that, on that toolbox thing, we've talked, Brad, you and I, in other podcasts about non-monetary measures that the FCC can take, such as additional reporting requirements or show cause procedures. And those are still available to the commission as well here. So um, even with fewer violations to work with, you could see situations where the commission turns to those other procedures to ensure that its enforcement is effective. And that, I think, brings us to the end here. So I want to thank everybody for joining us. Um, hope that you will continue to follow us on the Full Spectrum podcast, on Kelly Dry's Legal Download podcast, on our blog, um, on the Comlaw Monitor, or on Twitter or LinkedIn. We are a lot of different places here, and we have a lot of different information for you. So um, thanks again for joining us, and please continue to follow us. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.